Chapter 44 of The Three Clerks. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nastasia S. The Three Clerks by Anthony Trollope. Chapter 44. Before we put Alaric on board the ship which is to take him away from the land in which he might have run so exalted a career, we must say one word as to the fate and fortunes of his old friend Undy Scott. The gentleman has not been represented in our pages as an amiable or high-minded person. He had indeed been the bad spirit of the tale, the Siva of our mythology, the devil that has led our hero into temptation, the incarnation of evil, which it is always necessary that the novelist should have personified in one of his chapters to enable him to bring about his misfortunes, his tragedies, and various requisite catastrophes. God had his Barney, and such like, Dickens's Bill Sykes, and such like, all of whom are properly disposed of before the end of these volumes, in which are described the respective careers. I have ventured to introduce to my readers, as my devil, Mr. Undy Scott, M.P. for the Tillandulum District Burrs, and I also feel myself bound to dispose of him, though of him I regret I cannot make so decent an end as was done with Sir Richard Varney and Bill Sykes. He deserves, however, as severe a fate as either of those heroes. With the former we will not attempt to compare him, as the vices and delivery of the days of Queen Elizabeth are in no way similar to those in which we indulge, but with Bill Sykes we may compare him as they flourished in the same era, and had their points of similitude, as well as their points of difference. They were both apparently born to prey on their own species. They both resolutely adhered to a fixed rule that they would in no wise earn their bread, and to a rule equally fixed that, though they would earn no bread, they would consume much. They were both of them blessed with the total absence of sensibility, and an utter disregard to the pain of others, and had, no other use for a heart than that of a machine for maintaining the circulation of the blood. It is but little to say that neither of them ever acted on principle, on a knowledge, that is, of right and wrong, and a selection of the right, in their studies of the science of evil they had progressed much farther than this, and had taught themselves to believe that which other men called virtue was, on its own account, to be regarded as mawkish, insipid, and useless, for such purposes as the acquisition of money or pleasure, whereas vice was, on its own account, to be preferred, as offering the only road to those things which they were desirous of possessing. So far there was a great resemblance between Bill Sykes and Mr. Scott, but then came the points of difference, which must give to the latter a great pre-eminence in the eyes of that master whom they had both so worthily served. Bill could not boast the merit of selecting the course which he had run. He had served the devil, having had, as it were, no choice in the matter. He was born and bred and educated an evildoer, and could hardly have deserted from the colors of his great captain without some spiritual interposition to enable him to do so. To Undy, a warmer reward must surely be due. He had been placed fairly on the world's surface with power to choose between good and bad and had deliberately taken the latter to him had at any rate been explained the theory of meum and tuum 
and he had resolved that he'd like to em better than me em he had learned that there is a god ruling over us and a devil hankering after us and he made up his mind that he would belong to the latter bread and water would have come to him naturally without any villainy on his part ay and meat and milk and wine and oil the fat things of the world but he elected to be a villain he liked to do the devil's bidding surely he was the better servant surely he shall have the richer reward and yet poor bill sykes for whom here i would willingly say a word or two could i by so saying Magitate the wrath against him is always held as the more detestable scoundrel lady you now know them both it is not the fact that knowing him as you do you could spend a pleasant hour enough with mr scott sitting next to him at dinner whereas your blood would creep within you your hair would stand an end your voice would stick in your throat if you were suddenly told that bill sykes was in your presence poor bill i have a sort of love for him as he walks about wretched with that dog of his though i know that it is necessary to hang him yes bill i your friend cannot gainsay that must acknowledge that hard as the case may be you must be hung hung out of the way of further mischief my spoons my wife's throat my children's brains demand that you bill and polecats and such like must be quelched when we can come across you seeing that you make yourself so universally disagreeable it is your ordained nature to be disagreeable you plead silently i know it i admit the hardship of your case but still my bill self-preservation is the first law of nature you must be hung but while hanging you i admit that you are more sinned against than sinning there is another bill another who will surely take account of this in some way though it is not for me to tell you how yes i hang bill sykes with soft regret but with what a savage joy with what exultation of heart with what alacrity of eager soul with what aptitude of mind to the deed would i hang my friend undy scott the member of parliament for the tilly tudlam burrs if i could but get at his throat for such a purpose hang him ay as high as hammond in this there would be no regret no vacillation of purpose no doubt as to the propriety of the sacrifice no feeling that i was so treating him not for his own desert but for my advantage we hang men i believe with the objective only that we should deter others from crime but in hanging bill we shall hardly deter his brother bill sykes must look to crime for his bread seeing that he has been so educated seeing that we have not yet taught him another trade but if i could hang undy scott i think i should deter some others the figure of undy swinging from a gibbet at the broad end of lombard street would have an effect ay my fingers itch to be at that rope fate however and the laws are averse to gibbet him in one sense would have been my privilege had i drunk deeper from the castalian rill whose dark waters are tinged with the gall of poetic indignation but as another sense i may not hang him i will tell how he was driven from his club and how he ceased to number himself among the legislators of his country undy scott among his other good qualities possessed an enormous quantity of that which schoolboys in these days call cheek 
he was not easily browbeaten and was generally prepared to browbeat others mr chaffinbrass certainly did get the better of him but then mr chaffinbrass was on his own dunghill could undie scott have had mr chaffinbrass down at the clubs there would have been perhaps another tale to tell give me the cock that can crow in any yard such cocks however we know are scarce undie scott as he left the old bailey was aware that he had cut a sorry figure and felt that he must immediately do something to put himself right again at any rate before his portion of the world he must perform some exploit uncommonly cheeky in order to cover his late discomfiture to get the better of mr chaffinbrass at the old bailey had been beyond him but he might yet do something at the clubs to set aside the unanimous verdict which had been given against him in the city nay he must do something unless he was prepared to go to the wall utterly and all at once going to the wall with undie would mean absolute ruin he lived but on the cheekiness of his gait and habits he had become member of parliament government official railway director and club aristocrat merely by dint of cheek he had now received a great blow he had stood before a crowd and been annihilated by the better cheek of mr chaffinbrass and therefore it behoved him at once to do something when the perfume of the rose grows stale the flower is at once thrown aside and carried off as foul refuse it behoved undie to see that his perfume was maintained in its purity or he too would be carried off the club to which undie more especially belonged was called the downing and of this alaric was also a member having been introduced into it by his friend here had alaric spent by far too many of the hours of his married life and had become well known and popular at the time of his conviction the summer was far advanced it was then august but parliament was still sitting and there was sufficient club men remaining in london to create a daily gathering at the downing on the day following that on which the verdict was found undie convened a special committee of the club in order that he might submit to it a proposition which he thought it indispensable should come from him so at least he declared the committee did assemble, and when Undie met it, he saw among the faces before him not a few with whom he would willingly have dispensed. However, he had come there to exercise his cheek. No one there should cow him. The wig of Mr. Chaffinbrass was, at any rate, absent. And so he submitted his proposition. I need not trouble my readers with the neat little speech in which it was made. Undie was true to himself, and the speech was neat the proposition was this that as he had unfortunately been the means of introducing mr alaric tudor to the club he considered it to be his duty to suggest that the name of that gentleman should be struck off the books he then expressed his unmigitated disgust at the crime of which tudor had been found guilty uttered some nice little platitudes in the cause of virtue and expressed a hope that he might so far refer to a personal matter as to say that his father's family would take care that the lady whose fortune had been the subject of the trial should not lose one penny through the dishonesty of her trustee oh undie as high as hammond if i could as high as hammond and if not in lombard street then on that open ground where waterloo place bisects pall mall so that all the club might see thee 
he would avert he said to one other matter though perhaps his doing so was unnecessary it was probably known to them all that he had been a witness at the late trial an inquitious attempt that had been made by the prisoner's counsel to connect his name with the prisoner's guilt they all too well knew the latitude allowed to lawyers in the criminal courts to pay much attention to this he had undy scott in any way infringed the laws of his country he was there to answer for it but he would go further than this and declare that if any member of that club undoubtedly his probity in the matters he was perfectly willing to submit to such member documents which would etc etc he finished his speech and an awful silence reigned around him no enthusiastic ardour welcomed the well-loved undy back to his club and comforted him after the rough usage of the unpolished chaffin-brass no ten or twenty combined voices expressed by their clamorous negation of the last proposed process that their undy was above reproach the eyes around looked into him with no friendly alacrity undy undy more cheek still still more cheek or you are surely lost if said he in a well-assumed indignant tone of injured innocence there be any in the club who do suspect me of anything unbecoming a gentleman in this affair i am willing to retire from it till the matter shall have been investigated but in such case i demand that the investigation be immediate oh undy undy the supply of cheek is not bad it is all but unlimited but yet it suffices thee not can there be positions in this modern west end world of mine thought undy to himself in which cheek unbounded cheek will not suffice oh undy they are rare but still there are such and this unfortunately for thee seemeth to be one of them and then got up a discreet old baronet one who moveth not often in the affairs around him but who when he moveth stirreth many waters a man of broad acres and a quiet well-assured fame which has grown to him without his seeking it as barnacles grow to the stout keel when it has been long a-swimming him of all men would undy have wished to see unconcerned with these matters not in many words nor eloquent did sir thomas speak he felt it his duty he said to second the proposal made by mr scott for removing mr tutor from amongst them he had watched this trial with some care and he pitied mr tutor from the bottom of his heart he would not have thought that he could have felt so strong a sympathy for a man convinced of dishonesty but mr tutor had been convicted and he must incur the penalties of his fault one of these penalties must undoubtedly be his banishment from this club he therefore seconded mr scott's proposal he then stood silent for a moment having finished that task but yet he did not sit down why oh why does he not sit down why oh undy does he thus stand looking at the surface of the table on which he is leaning and now he said he had another proposition to make and that was that mr undecimus scott should also be expelled from the club and having so spoken in a voice of unusual energy he then sat down and now undy 
you may as well pack up and be off without further fuss to Boulogne, Ostend, or some such idle Elysium, with such money scrapings as you may be able to collect together. No importunity will avail thee anything amongst the judges and jurymen who are now trying thee. No word from the silent old baronet was worse to thee than all that Mr. Sheffenbrass could say. Come, pack up, and be gone. But he was still a member of Parliament. The Parliament, however, was able to be dissolved, and, of course, it would be useless for him to stand again. He, like Mr. Buffer, had had a spell of it, and he recognized the necessity of varnishing. He at first thought that his life as a legislator might be allowed to come to a natural end, that he might die, as it were, in his bed, without suffering the acute pain of applying to the Chiltern Hundreds. In this, however, he found himself wrong. The injured honour of all the Attili Tudlamites rose against him with one indignant shout, and a rumour, a horrid rumour, of a severe fate met his ears. He applied at once for the now-coveted sinecure, and was refused. Her Majesty could not consent to entrust to him the duties of the situation in question, and in lieu, therefore, the House expelled him by its unanimous voice. And now, indeed, it was time for him to pack and be gone. He was now liable to the vulgarest persecution from the vulgar herd. His very tailor and bootmaker would beleaguer him, and coarse unwashed bailiffs taken by the collar. Yes, now indeed, it was time to be off. And off he was. He paid one fleeting visit to my lord at Caldkale Castle, collecting what little he might, another to his honourable wife, adding some slender increase to his little budget, and then he was off. Whither, it is needless to say, to Hamburg, perhaps, or to Ems, or the richer tables of Hamburg. How he flourished for a while with ambiguous success, how he talked to the young English tourists of what he had done when in Parliament, especially for the rights of married women, how he poked his honourable card in every one's way, and lugged Lord Gaberlunzi into all conversations, how his face became pimply in his wardrobe seedy, and how all at last his wretched life will ooze out from him in some dark corner, like the filthy juice of a decayed fungus which makes hideous the hidden wall on which it bursts. All this is unnecessary more particularly to describe. He is probably still living, and those who desire his acquaintance will find him creeping round some gambling table, and trying to look as though he had in his pocket ample means to secure those hoards of money which men are so listlessly raking about. From our view, he has now vanished. It was a bitter February morning, when two cabs stood packing themselves at number 5, Paradise Row, Millbank. It was hardly yet six o'clock, and Paradise Row was dark as Erebus. That solitary gas light sticking out from the wall of the prison only made darkness visible. The tallow candles, which were brought in and out with every article that was stuffed under a seat or into a corner, would get themselves blown out. And the sleet, which was falling fast, made the wicks wet, so that they could with difficulty be relighted. But at last the cabs were packed with luggage, and into one got Gertrude with her husband, her baby, and her mother, 
and into the other charlie landed linda then ally and lastly the youthful maiden who humbly begged his pardons as she stepped up to the vehicle and then having given due directions to the driver he not without difficulty squeezed himself into the remaining space such journeys as these are always made at a slow pace cabmen know very well who must go fast and who may go slow women with children going on board an immigrant vessel at six o'clock on a february morning may be taken very slowly and very slowly gertrude and her party were taken time had been nay it was but the other day when alaric's impatient soul would have spurred at such a pace as this but now he sat tranquil enough his wife held one of his hands and the other he pressed against his eyes as though shading them from the light light there was none but he had not yet learned to face miss woodward even in the darkness he had come out of the prison on the day before and had spent an evening with her it is needless to say that no one had upbraided him that no one had hinted that his backslidings had caused all this present misery had brought them all to that wretched cabin and would on that morrow separate perhaps forever a mother and a child who loved each other so dearly no one spoke to him of this perhaps no one thought of it he however did so think of it that he could not hold his head up before them he was ill gertrude said his long confinement had prostrated him but the sea air would revive him in a day or two and then she made herself busy and got the tea for them and strove not wholly in vain to drive dull care away but slowly as the cabs went in spite of charlie's vocal execrations they did go to the docks in time who indeed was ever too late at the docks who that ever went there had not to linger 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 till every shred of patience was clean worn out they got to the ducks in time and got on board that fast sailing clipper built never beaten always healthy ship the flash of lightning five thousand six hundred tons a one why we have often wondered are ships designated as a one seeing that all ships are of that class where is the excellence seeing that all share it of course flash of lightning was a one the author has for years been looking out and has not yet found a ship advertised as a two or even as b one what is the catalogue of comparative excellence of which there is but one visible number the world we think makes a great mistake on the subject of saying or acting farewell the word or deed should partake of the suddenness of electricity but we all draw through it at a snail's pace we are supposed to tear ourselves from our friends but tearing is a process which should be done quickly what is so wretched as lingering over a last kiss giving the hand for the third time saying over and over again good-bye john god bless you and mind you write who has not seen his dearest friends standing round the window of a railway carriage while a train would not start and has not longed to say to them stand not upon the order of your going but go at once and of all such farewells the ship's farewell is the longest and the most dreary one sits on a damp bench snuffing up the odour of oil and ropes 
cudgeling one's brain to think what further word of increased tenderness can be spoken. No tenderer word can be spoken. One returns again and again to the weather, to coats and cloaks, perhaps even to sandwiches in the sherry flask. All effect is thus destroyed, and a trespass is made even on the domain of feeling. I remember a line of poetry learnt in my earliest youth, and which I believe to have emanated from a sentimental Frenchman, a man of genius, with whom my parents were acquainted. It is as follows. Are you go? Is you gone? And I left? Vero well. Now the whole business of a farewell is contained in that line. When the moment comes, let that be said, let that be said and felt, and then let the dear ones depart. Mr. Woodward and Gertrude, God bless them, had never studied the subject. They knew no better than to sit in the nasty cabin, surrounded by boxes, stewards, porters, children, and abominations of every kind, holding each other's hands and pressing damp handkerchiefs to their eyes. The delay, the lingering, upset even Gertrude, and brought her for a moment down to the usual level of leave-taking womanhood. Alaric, the meanwhile, stood leaning over the taffrail with Charlie, as mute as the fishes beneath him. Right was the moment you get there, said Charlie. How often had that injunction been given? And now we had better get off. You'll be better when we are gone, Alaric. Charlie had some sense of the truth about him. And, Alaric, take my word for it. I'll come and set the Melbourne weights and measures to rights before long. I'll come and weigh your gold for you. We had better be going now, said Charlie, looking down into the cabin. They may let loose and be off any moment now. Oh, Charlie, not yet, not yet, said Linda, clinging to her sister. You'll have to get down to the knoll if you stay, that's all, said Charlie. And then again began the kissing and the crying. Yes, ye dear ones, it is hard to part. It is hard for the mother to see the child of her bosom torn from her forever. It is cruel that sisters should be severed. It is a harsh sentence for the world to give, that of such a separation as this. These... O ye loving hearts, are the penalties of love. Those that are content to love must always be content to pay them. Go, mamma, go, said Gertrude. Dearest, best, sweetest mother, my own, own mother, go. Linda, darling Linda, give my kindest love to Harry. Charlie, you and Harry will be good to mamma. I know you will. And mamma? And then she whispered to her mother one last prayer in Charlie's favor. She may love him now. Indeed she may. Alara came to them at the last moment. Miss Woodward, said he, say that you forgive me. I do, said she, embracing him. God knows that I do. But Alaric, remember what a treasure you possess. And so they parted. May God speed the wanderers. End of chapter 44 Recording by Nastasia S.